Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and today I will be your travel companion as we visit, for the first time, the land of Russia. Let's kick off this episode like we always do, and that's with the traditional iTunes review. New Favorite by Scout R95. This is exactly the podcast I've been looking for. I'm blown away by both the quality of Sean's readings and the production of the show. I think reading contemporary and classic stories side by side is a wonderful idea. Truly, thank you for doing this. I look forward to each episode. Thanks very much to Scout for the kind words, and if you are so inclined to leave some words of your own wherever you get your podcasts, I will read those words right here on the show. And speaking of Scout, if you somehow missed last week's episode, make sure you catch that now and hear Scout's story, Winter Sun, along with a story by a friend of the show, Kayla Knight. You can also get in touch with the show on social media, whether that's on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at SYYPodcast. You can contact me through any of those methods, or through SYYPodcast at gmail.com with requests or with your own original short story. I enjoy talking with everybody, so don't be shy. Now, before we get into this week's stories, I need to remind you of Livestream for the Cure, which is coming up shortly. As you may remember, I'll be part of that event. My segment, which will be a live reading, will air live on Saturday night, May 18th at 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Please do tune in and be a part of Making a Difference. If you're so inclined to give a few dollars to the cause, do that during my segment and represent stories of your and yours in the fight against cancer. Now, with more about this special event, here are the organizers, Nick and Justin, the Epic Film Guys. Justin, can you believe it's almost time? Time for what? The 2019 Livestream for the Cure. This is our third year hosting this amazing event with every single cent going toward cancer research. The Cancer Research Institute funds research into immunotherapy to create a future immune to all forms of cancer. And this amazing nonprofit organization is rated over 92% by CharityNavigator.org and puts 88 cents of every dollar toward cancer research. Last year, thanks to an amazing team of collaborators, fans, supporters, and listeners, we raised over $5,000 in 30 hours on the air. And this year, with your help, we're going for our biggest goal yet. Tune in May 17th to the 19th on twitch.tv slash Epic Film Guys for 40 hours of amazing content as we try to reach $7,500. For more information or to find out how you can become a part of the event, please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com. Together, we can make a difference. Well, now that you've been reminded about Livestream for the Cure, I've got a couple of other collaborations to let you know about. I'll be appearing on not just one, but two other podcasts this week. In fact, both of them are available right now. First, this past Monday, April 15th, I was a guest on Everyone Has a Story. I've talked about Nate's show here before, but in case you missed it, Everyone Has a Story is about, well, people's stories. So, if you want to know more about me and what I'm all about, go check out the latest episode of Everyone Has a Story. You can find that show on social media at Knate Radio. That's K-N-A-T Radio. And I'll have all these links in the show notes, including the direct links to the episodes that I'm talking about. Now, mind you, talking about myself is not in my comfort zone, but narrating stories 
Well, that is where I am in my element behind the mic. And you can hear me do that on the most recent episode of Interrupted Tales, which dropped yesterday, April 16th. This is another show I've talked about before, but Interrupted Tales features hosts Rob and Alan reading old pulp stories each week, and as the title implies, they interrupt each other with jokes and funny comments. This week, I read a story by W. Wilkie Collins, and I had an absolute blast doing it. Rob and Alan are hilarious, but hopefully some of my jokes ended up making the cut too. I'm recording this a couple of weeks before it's set to air, but either way, you are bound to enjoy the show, and I am completely comfortable guaranteeing that you will never see the ending coming. And Rob and Alan, by the way, will also be guests right here next week when they do the introduction for next week's author, so make sure you don't miss that. As for this week, we'll be presenting stories from one of the greatest short fiction writers in literary history, namely one Anton Chekhov. Chekhov was born in January of 1860 in Taganrog, Russia, and I almost certainly butchered that name, so I apologize to my Russian listeners. But moving on, when Chekhov was 16 years old, his father was declared bankrupt after being unable to pay for the building of his house. The family, except for Anton, fled to Moscow to avoid the elder Chekhov's being thrown into debtor's prison. Anton himself was left behind to finish his education and sell off the family's possessions. He paid for his education in part by capturing and selling goldfinches. In 1879, he was admitted into medical school in Moscow, at which point he assumed financial responsibility for the family by selling daily vignettes about contemporary Russian life to local newspapers. As time went on, he was able to move the family into progressively nicer accommodations as his financial situation improved. Chekhov considered his primary occupation to be that of a doctor after graduating medical school, despite also being a very prolific writer. He once said, Medicine is my lawful wife and literature my mistress. When I get tired of one, I spend the night with the other. There's a lot we could get into about Chekhov's literary periods and the influence he's had on writers that came after him. He started out writing somewhat facetious stories and sketches, but eventually moved on to more serious work, which would cause him to be known as a father of the modern short story. His work would reflect the principle of realism in storytelling. He was also influential in the construction of his stories. His style was not to spell things out for the audience. He told his contemporaries countless times to get rid of superfluous details in their writing. Everything, he said, should mean something. He even has a character in his play, The Seagull, who bemoans the use of unnecessary details in the character's own writings. Chekhov spent time in the penal colony of Sakhalin, near Siberia, which influenced his feelings on prison reform, and he lived later in Melikov and Yalta, both of which reflect distinct periods in his writings. His dealings as a doctor with both the poor and upper class of Russia were hugely influential on his writings, as many of them point out the hypocrisy of the aristocracy and upper class. That seems to be a recurring motif over the course of these episodes, doesn't it? And again, this is a very brief overview of Chekhov's life and legacy. In addition to being known for his short stories, Chekhov was also a playwright. In fact, he became known outside of Russia for his plays before his stories were popular. Unfortunately, despite the very large influence his writing would have on the literary world, his life was cut relatively short by tuberculosis. Chekhov suspected he had the disease as early as 1884 or 1885, but would not admit this to his family or friends. And it wasn't until 1897 that doctors finally diagnosed him. And seven years later, in 1904, he finally succumbed to the condition at the age of 44. By that time, Chekhov had published over 200 short stories, 14 plays, and several more books and novellas. So I've got two stories by Chekhov this week, the first of which is called The Bet. 
The bet was first published in January of 1889 in Novoye Vrema. Novoye Vrema was a St. Petersburg newspaper that ran from 1868 to 1917. I don't have a ton of information on the publication, in part because there are two other similarly titled Russian newspapers. Novoye Vrema became one of Russia's most popular newspapers during its run. Chekhov was the most prominent Russian writer to appear in the pages, but they were also known for featuring other important writers of the day. The paper was not viewed favorably by the Bolsheviks, and after the October Revolution in 1917, it was shut down by Vladimir Lenin. There is actually a bit of a story behind the publication of The Bet that illustrates just how quickly Chekhov was able to crank out his stories. In December of 1888, Chekhov was asked to write a story for Petersburgkaya Gazeta, which sounds to me like it probably means the St. Petersburg Gazette. Eight days later, they published his story, which was called The Cobbler and the Devil. He told the editor of Novoye Vrema that he had published this story, who in turn took this as an insult. So, in return, Chekhov promised to write him a story for publication before December 31st. He started writing on December 22nd and ended up sending the bet to Novoye Vrema on December 30th. So both of these stories took only eight days to write, which was actually not uncommon for a turnaround time for Chekhov. The second story this week is called A Defenseless Creature. For this one, unfortunately, I couldn't find a lot of history, or really much of anything at all, but from what I can tell, it was originally published in 1887. I'm not sure where, and that's kind of all I have. So, with that albeit brief history behind us, plus the history of Chekhov and the bet, let's move on to this week's presentation. The Bet by Anton Chekhov It was a dark autumn night, the old banker was walking up and down his study and remembering how, fifteen years before, he had given a party one autumn evening. There had been many clever men there, and there had been interesting conversations. Among other things, they had talked of capital punishment. The majority of the guests, among whom were many journalists and intellectual men, disapproved of the death penalty. They considered that form of punishment out of date, immoral, and unsuitable for Christian states. In the opinion of some of them, the death penalty ought to be replaced everywhere by imprisonment for life. I don't agree with you, said their host, the banker. I have not tried either the death penalty or imprisonment for life, but if one may judge a priori, the death penalty is more moral and more humane than imprisonment for life. Capital punishment kills a man at once, but lifelong imprisonment kills him slowly. Which executioner is more humane, he who kills you in a few minutes, or he who drags the life out of you over the course of many years? Both are equally immoral, observed one of the guests, for they both have the same object, to take away life. The state is not God. It has not the right to take away what it cannot restore when it wants to. Among the guests was a young lawyer, a young man of five and twenty. When he was asked his opinion, he said, the death sentence and the life sentence are equally immoral. But if I had to choose between the death penalty and imprisonment for life, I would certainly choose the second. To live anyhow is better than not at all. A lively discussion arose. The banker, who was younger and more nervous in those days, 
was suddenly carried away by excitement. He struck the table with his fist and shouted at the young man, It's not true. I'll bet you two millions you wouldn't stay in solitary confinement for five years. If you mean that in earnest, said the young man, I'll take the bet, but I would not stay five, but fifteen years. Fifteen? Done, cried the banker. Gentlemen, I stake two millions. Agreed. You stake your millions, and I stake my freedom, said the young man. And this wild, senseless bet was carried out. The banker, spoiled and frivolous, with millions beyond his reckoning, was delighted at the bet. At supper he made fun of the young man, and said, Think better of it, young man, while still there is time. To me two millions are a trifle, but you are losing three or four of the best years of your life. I say three or four because you won't stay longer. Don't forget either, you unhappy men, that voluntary confinement is a great deal harder to bear than compulsory. The thought that you have the right to step out in liberty in any moment will poison your whole existence in prison. I am sorry for you. And now the banker, walking to and fro, remembered all this, and asked himself, What was the object of that bet? What is the good of that man's losing fifteen years of his life, and my throwing away two millions? Can it prove that the death penalty is better or worse than imprisonment for life? No, no, it was all nonsensical and meaningless. On my part it was the caprice of a pampered man, and on his part simple greed for money. Then he remembered what followed that evening. It was decided that the young man should spend the years of his captivity under the strictest supervision in one of the lodges in the banker's garden. It was agreed that for fifteen years he should not be free to cross the threshold of his lodge, to see human beings, to hear the human voice, or to receive letters and newspapers. He was allowed to have a musical instrument and books, and was allowed to write letters, to drink wine, and to smoke. By the terms of the agreement, the only relations he could have with the outer world were by a little window made purposely for that object. He might have anything he wanted— books, music, wine, and so on, in any quantity he desired by writing an order, but he could only receive them through the window. The agreement provided every detail and every trifle that would make his imprisonment strictly solitary, and bound the young man to stay there exactly fifteen years, beginning from twelve o'clock on November fourteenth, 1870, and ending at twelve o'clock of November fourteenth, 1885. The slightest attempt on his part to break the conditions, if only two minutes before the end, released the banker from the obligation to pay him two millions. For the first year of his confinement, as far as one could judge from his brief notes, the prisoner suffered severely from loneliness and depression. The sounds of the piano could be heard continually day and night from his lodge. He refused wine and tobacco. Wine, he wrote, excites the desires, and desires are the worst foes of the prisoner. And besides, nothing could be more dreary than drinking good wine and seeing no one. And tobacco spoiled the air of his room. In the first year, the books he sent for were principally of a light character, novels with a complicated love plot, sensational and fantastic stories, and so on. In the second year, the piano was silent in the lodge, and the prisoner asked only for the classics. In the fifth year, the music was audible again, and the prisoner asked for wine. Those who watched him through the window said that all that year he spent doing nothing but eating and drinking and lying on his bed, frequently yawning and angrily talking to himself. He did not read books. Sometimes at night he would sit down to write, he would spend hours writing, and in the morning tear up all that he had written. More than once he could be heard crying. 
<laughs> in the second half of the sixth year, the prisoner began zealously studying languages, philosophy, and history. He threw himself eagerly into these studies, so much so that the banker had enough to do to get him the books he ordered. In the course of four years, some six hundred volumes were procured at his request. It was during this period that the banker received the following letter from his prisoner. My dear jailer, I write you these lines in six languages. Show them to people who know the languages. Let them read them. If they find not one mistake, I implore you to fire a shot in the garden. That shot will show me that my efforts have not been thrown away. The geniuses of all ages and of all lands speak different languages, but the same flame burns in them all. Oh, if you only knew what unearthly happiness my soul feels now from being able to understand them. The prisoner's desire was fulfilled. The banker ordered two shots to be fired in the garden. Then, after the tenth year, the prisoner sat immovably at the table and read nothing but the gospel. It seemed strange to the banker that a man who in four years had mastered six hundred learned volumes should waste nearly a year over one thin book of easy comprehension. Theology and histories of religion followed the Gospels. In the last two years of his confinement, the prisoner read an immense quantity of books quite indiscriminately. At one time he was busy with the natural sciences, then he would ask for Byron or Shakespeare. There were notes in which he demanded at the same time books on chemistry and a manual of medicine and a novel and some treatise on philosophy or theology. His reading suggested a man swimming in the sea among the wreckage of his ship and trying to save his life by greedily clutching first at one spar and then at another. 2. The old banker remembered all this and thought, Tomorrow at twelve o'clock he will regain his freedom. By our agreement, I ought to pay him his two millions. If I do pay him, it is all over with me. I shall be utterly ruined. Fifteen years before, his millions had been beyond his reckoning. Now he was afraid to ask himself which were greater, his debts or his assets. Desperate gambling on the stock exchange, wild speculation, and the excitability which he could not get over even in advancing years had by degrees led to the decline of his fortune, and the proud, fearless, self-confident millionaire had become a banker of middling rank, trembling at every rise and fall in his investments. "'Cursed bet,' muttered the old man, clutching his head in despair. "'Why didn't the man die? He is only forty now. He will take my last penny from me. He will marry, will enjoy life, will gamble on the exchange, while I shall look at them with envy like a beggar.' and hear from him every day the same sentence. I am indebted to you for the happiness of my life. Let me help you. No, it is too much. The one means of being saved from bankruptcy and disgrace is the death of that man. It struck three o'clock. The banker listened. Everyone was asleep in the house, and nothing could be heard outside but the rustling of the chilled trees. Trying to make no noise, he took from a fireproof safe the key of the door which had not been opened for fifteen years, put on his overcoat, and went out of the house. It was dark and cold in the garden. Rain was falling. A damp, cutting wind was racing about the garden, howling and giving the trees no rest. The banker strained his eyes, but could see neither the earth, nor the white statues, nor the lodge, nor the trees. Going to the spot where the lodge stood, he twice called the watchman. No answer followed. Evidently, the watchman had sought shelter from the weather. 
and was now asleep somewhere, either in the kitchen or in the greenhouse. If I had the pluck to carry out my intention, thought the old man, suspicion would first fall on the watchman. He felt in the darkness for the steps and the door and went to the entry of the lodge. Then he groped his way into the little passage and lighted a match. There was not a soul there. There was a bedstead with no bedding on it, and in the corner there was a dark cast-iron stove. The seals on the door leading to the prisoner's rooms were intact. When the match went out, the old man, trembling with emotion, peeped through the little window. A candle was burning dimly in the prisoner's room. He was sitting at the table. Nothing could be seen but his back, the hair on his head, and his hands. Open books were lying on the table, on the two easy chairs, and on the carpet near the table. Five minutes passed, and the prisoner did not once stir. Fifteen years' imprisonment had taught him to sit still. The banker tapped at the window with his finger, and the prisoner made no movement whatever in response. Then the banker cautiously broke the seals off the door and put the key in the keyhole. The rusty lock gave a grating sound, and the door creaked. The banker expected to hear at once footsteps and a cry of astonishment, but three minutes passed, and it was as quiet as ever in the room. He made up his mind to go in. At the table, a man unlike ordinary people was sitting motionless. He was a skeleton, with the skin drawn tight over his bones, with long curls like a woman's, and a shaggy beard. His face was yellow with an earthy tint in it. His cheeks were hollow, his back long and narrow, and the hand on which his shaggy head was propped was so thin and delicate that it was dreadful to look at. His hair was already streaked with silver, and seeing his emaciated, aged-looking face, no one would have believed that he was only forty. He was asleep. In front of his bowed head there lay on the table a sheet of paper, on which there was something written in fine handwriting. Poor creature, thought the banker. He is asleep and most likely dreaming of the millions. And I have only to take this half-dead man, throw him on the bed, stifle him a little with the pillow, and the most conscientious experts would find no sign of a violent death. But let us first read what was written here. The banker took the page from the table and read as follows. Tomorrow at twelve o'clock I regain my freedom and the right to associate with other men. But before I leave this room and see the sunshine, I think it necessary to say a few words to you. With a clear conscience I tell you, as before God who beholds me, that I despise freedom and life and health and all that in your books is called the good things in the world. For fifteen years I have been intently studying earthly life. It is true I have not seen the earth nor men, but in your books I have drunk fragrant wine, I have sung songs, I have hunted stags and wild boars in the forests, have loved women, beauties as ethereal as clouds, created by the magic of your poets and geniuses, have visited me at night, and have whispered in my ears wonderful tales that have set my brain in a whirl. In your books I have climbed to the peaks of Elbors and Mount Blanc, and from there I have seen the sun rise and have watched it at evening flood the sky, the ocean, and the mountain tops with gold and crimson. I have watched from there the lightning flashing over my head and cleaving the storm clouds. I have seen green forests, fields, rivers, lakes, towns. I have heard the singing of the sirens, 
the strains of the shepherd's pipes. I have touched the wings of the comely devils who flew down to converse with me of God. In your books I have flung myself to the bottomless pit, performed miracles, slain, borne towns, preached new religions, conquered whole kingdoms. Your books have given me wisdom. All that the unresting thought of men has created in the ages is compressed into a small compass in my brain. I know that I am wiser than all of you. I despise wisdom and the blessings of this world. It is all worthless, fleeting, illusory, deceptive like a mirage. You may be proud, wise, and fine, but death will wipe you off the face of the earth as though you were no more than a mice burrowing under the floor, and your posterity, your history, your immortal geniuses will burn or freeze together with the earthly globe. You have lost your reason and taken the wrong path. You have taken lies for truth and hideousness for beauty. You would marvel if, owing to strange events of some sorts, frogs and lizards suddenly grew an apple and orange trees instead of fruit, or if roses began to smell like sweating horse. So I marvel at you, who exchange heaven for earth. I don't want to understand you. To prove to you in action how I despise all that you live by, I renounce the two millions of which I once dreamed as of paradise and which I now despise. To deprive myself of the right to the money, I shall go out from here five hours before the time fixed, and so break the compact. When the banker had read this, he laid the page on the table, kissed the strange man on the head, and went out of the lodge, weeping. At no other time, even when he had lost heavily on the stock exchange, had he felt so great a contempt for himself. When he got home, he lay on his bed, but his tears and emotion kept him four hours from sleeping. Next morning, the watchmen ran in with pale faces and told him they had seen the man who lived in the lodge climb out of the window into the garden, go to the gate, and disappear. The banker went at once with the servants to the lodge and made sure of the flight of the prisoner. To avoid arousing unnecessary talk, he took from the table the writing in which the millions were renounced, and when he got home, locked it up in the fireproof safe. A Defenseless Creature by Anton Chekhov In spite of a violent attack of gout in the night and the nervous exhaustion left by it, Kistunov went in the morning into his office and began punctually seeing the clients of the bank and persons who had come with petitions. He looked languid and exhausted and spoke in a faint voice hardly above a whisper, as though he were dying. "'What can I do for you?' he asked the lady in an antediluvian mantle whose back view was extremely suggestive of a huge dung beetle. "'You see, Your Excellency,' the petitioner in question began, speaking rapidly, "'my husband Stuchkin, a collegiate assessor, was ill for five months, and while he, if you will excuse my saying so, was laid up at home, he was for no sort of reason dismissed, Your Excellency, and when I went for his salary, they deducted, if you please, Your Excellency, 
24 rubles, 36 kopecks from his salary. What for, I asked. He borrowed from the club fund, they told me, and the other clerks had stood security for him. How was that? How could he have borrowed without my consent? It's impossible, Your Excellency. What is the reason of it? I'm a poor woman. I earn my bread by taking in lodgers. I'm a weak, defenseless woman. I have to put up with ill usage from everyone and never hear a kind word. The petitioner was blinking and dived into her mantle for her handkerchief. Kistunov took her petition from her and began reading it. Excuse me, what's this? he asked, shrugging his shoulders. I can make nothing of it. Evidently you have come to the wrong place, madam. Your petition has nothing to do with us at all. You will have to apply to the department in which your husband was employed. Why, my dear sir, I have been to five places already, and they would not even take the petition anywhere, said Madame Stuchkin. I'd quite lost my head, but thank goodness, God bless him for it, my son-in-law, Boris Matevich, advised me to come to you. You go to Mr. Kistonov, Mama. He is an influential man, and he can do anything for you. Help me, Your Excellency. We can do nothing for you, Madame Stuchkin. You must understand. Your husband served in the Army Medical Department, and our establishment is purely private commercial undertaking, a bank. Surely you must understand that. Kistunov shrugged his shoulders again and turned to a gentleman in military uniform with a swollen face. Your Excellency, piped Madame Stuchkin in a pitiful voice, I have the doctor's certificate that my husband was ill. Here it is, if you will kindly look at it. Very good, I believe you, Kistunov said irritably. But I repeat, it has nothing to do with us. It's queer and positively absurd. Surely your husband must know where you are to apply. He knows nothing, your excellency. He keeps on, it's not your business, get away. That's all I can get out of him. Whose business is it then? Kistunov again turned to Madame Stuchkin and began explaining to her the difference between the army medical department and a private bank. She listened attentively, nodded in token of assent, and said, Yes, 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 I understand, sir. In that case, your excellency, tell them to pay me fifteen rubles at least. I agree to take part on account. Oof sighed Kistunov, letting his head drop back. There's no making you see reason. Do understand that to apply to us such a petition is as strange as to send a petition concerning divorce, for instance, to a chemist's or to the essaying board. You have not been paid your due, but what have we to do with it? Your Excellency, make me remember you in my prayers for the rest of my days. Have pity on a lone, lorn woman, wailed Madame Stuchkin. I am a weak, defenseless woman. I am worried to death. I have to settle with the lodgers and see to my husband's affairs and fly around looking after the house and I am going to church every day of the week and my son-in-law is out of a job. I might as well not eat or drink. I can scarcely keep on my feet. I haven't slept all night. Kistunov was conscious of the palpitation of his heart. With a face of anguish pressing his hand on his heart, he began explaining to Madame Stuchkin again, but his voice failed him. No, excuse me, I cannot talk to you, he said with a wave of his hand. My head's going round. You are hindering us and wasting your time. Oh, Alexei Nikolaitch, he said, addressing one of his clerks. Please, will you explain to Madame Stuchkin? Kistunov, passing by all the petitioners, went to his private room and signed about a dozen papers while Alexei Nikolaitch was still engaged with Madame Stuchkin. 
As he sat in his room, Kistanov heard two voices, the monotonous, restrained bass of Alexei Nikolaitch and the shrill, wailing voice of Madame Stuchkin. I am a weak, defenseless woman. I am a woman in delicate health, said Madame Stuchkin. I look strong, but if you were to overhaul me, there is not one healthy fiber in me. I can scarcely keep on my feet, and my appetite is gone. I drank my cup of coffee this morning without the slightest relish. Alexei Nikolaitch explained to her the difference between the departments and the complicated system of sending in papers. He was soon exhausted, and his place was taken by the accountant. A wonderfully disagreeable woman, said Kistunov, revolted, nervously cracking his fingers and continually going to the decanter of water. She's a perfect idiot. She's worn me out and she'll exhaust them, the nasty creature. Oof, my heart is throbbing. Half an hour later, he rang his bell. Alexei Nikolaitch made his appearance. How are things going? Kistunov asked languidly. We can't make her see anything, Pyotr Alexandrich. We are simply done. We talk of one thing and she talks of something else. I... I can't stand the sound of her voice. I am ill. I can't bear it. Send for the porter, Pyotr Alexandrich. Let him put her out. No, no, cried Kistunov in alarm. She will set up a squeal and there are lots of flats in the building and goodness knows what they would think of us. Do try to explain to her, my dear fellow. A minute later, the deep drone of Alexei Nikolaitch's voice was audible again. A quarter of an hour passed, and instead of his bass, there was the murmur of the accountant's powerful tenor. A remarkably nasty woman, Kistov thought indignantly, nervously shrugging his shoulders. No more brains than his sheep. I believe that's a twinge of the gout again. My migraine is coming back. In the next room, Alexei Nikolaitch, at the end of his resources, at last tapped his finger on the table and then on his own forehead. The fact of the matter is you haven't a head on your shoulders, he said, but this. Come, come, said the old lady, offended. Talk to your own wife like that. You screw. Don't be too free with your hands. And looking at her with fury, with exasperation, as though he would devour her, Alexei Nikolaitch said in a quiet, stifled voice, Clear out. What? squealed Madame Stuchkin. How dare you? I am a weak, defenseless woman. I won't endure it. My husband is a collegiate assessor. You screw. I will go to Dmitri College, the lawyer, and there will be nothing left of you. I've had the law of three lodgers, and I will make you flop down at my feet for your saucy words. I'll go to your general. Your Excellency, Your Excellency. Be off, you pest, hissed Alexei Nikolaitch. Kistunov opened his door and looked into the office. What is it? he asked in a tearful voice. Madame Stuchkin, as red as a crab, was standing in the middle of the room, rolling her eyes and prodding the air with her fingers. The bank clerks were standing round red in the face, too, and evidently harassed were looking at each other distractedly. "'Your Excellency!' cried Madame Stuchkin, pouncing on Kistanov. "'Here, this man here! This man!' she pointed to Alexei Nikolaitch. "'Tapped himself on the forehead and then tapped the table!' You told him to go into my case, and he's jeering at me. I am a weak, defenseless woman. My husband is a collegiate assessor. I am a major's daughter myself. Very good, madam, moaned Kistunov. I will get into it. I will take the steps. Go away. Later. And when shall I get the money, Your Excellency? I need it today. Kistunov passed the trembling hand over his forehead, heaved a sigh, and began explaining again. 
Madam, I have told you already this is a bank, a private commercial establishment. What do you want of us? And do understand that you are hindering us. Madam Stuchkin listened to him and sighed. To be sure, to be sure, she assented. Only, Your Excellency, do me the kindness. Make me pray for you for the rest of my life. Be a father. Protect me. If a medical certificate is not enough, I can produce affidavit from the police. Tell them to give me the money. Everything began swimming before Kistunov's eyes. He breathed out all the air in his lungs in a prolonged sigh and sank helpless on a chair. How much do you want? he asked in a weak voice. Twenty-four rubles and thirty-six kopecks. Kistunov took his pocketbook out of his pocket, extracted a twenty-five-ruble note, and gave it to Madame Stutchkin. Take it, then, to go away. Madame Stutchkin wrapped the money up in her handkerchief, put it away, and, pursing her face into a sweet, mincing, even coquettish smile, asked, Your Excellency, and would it be possible for my husband to get a post again? I am going. I am ill said Kistunov in a weary voice. I have dreadful palpitations. When he had driven home, Alexei Nikolaitch sent Nikita for some laurel drops, and after taking twenty drops each, all the clerks set to work, while Madame Stushkin stayed another two hours in the vestibule, talking to the porter and waiting for Kistunov to return. She came again the next day. So once again, when you think you have all the answers, Chekhov, not unlike Roddy Piper, changes the questions. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours, and if you did, I would love it if you spread the word and leave an iTunes review for me to read on the show. If you've got a story to submit, or if you have a request for a short story, send that in to syypodcast at gmail.com, or hit me up via the aforementioned social media handles. And if you want to support the show, I would love it if you check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash syypodcast. Thank you to my excellent, excellent patrons. And for a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. And remember to get a hold of this week's episodes of Everyone Has a Story and Interrupted Tales. And honestly, if you're doing it right, you'll subscribe to both of these shows. They are great podcasts hosted by great people, and they're excellent additions to any podcast feed. Now next week, we'll be introducing a character who you've almost definitely heard of, though you may be more familiar with the version played by a certain huge Austrian. Well, until then, this has been Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>